Good morning. Welcome to Restoration Church. My name is Pastor Kevin. If I have not had the chance to meet you yet, I hope to get the chance here after service today. I'm thankful you guys are here visiting with us today. A um, couple things. One of the things that I appreciate that Jim said is we are five months old as a church. We've been around for five months, and so we are still under construction. Yeah, five months. And uh, we are still under construction. One of the things I appreciate is you never know what it's going to look like up here. The stage looks different. There's wires all over the place because this morning we had no clue what we were doing. And, uh, and, and the worship leader is different. That's okay. One of the things I do appreciate is while the church will change, the word of God never does. And God never changes. God never changes. And so it's still the same God. That's just as much of a hand clap for that. And so I am thankful that, that, that we're able to do things a little different each week here at Restoration, and we still worship the same God. And so we're beginning this new sermon series. We began it last week called The God Questions. And the sermon series, the purpose for this sermon series was to go through and say, what are some of the questions that we as humans, we naturally ask ourselves? These are questions that regardless of where you come from, at some point, you find yourself asking these questions. Questions like, you know, is God real? Is he really there? I mean, I mean, these are questions you may have said, well, I asked that years ago. But these are questions that people ask. Uh, questions like, questions like, does God really hate gays? I mean, you see on the news, you see the, the church that holds signs in front of, the, uh, front of funerals that says God hates gays. Is that true? Or is that really what God says? Or is that just what somebody interpreted God to say? We're going to deal with some of these questions that I think are going to grow us in our faith and grow us in our knowledge of who God is. Today, our question is going to be, is the Bible real? Is the Bible trustworthy? You know, as, as churches, we take this book and we say, this book teaches us everything we need to know. And, 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 and so the question is, is it real? Can we trust it? Well, why does that question even matter? Why does that question even matter? Why does it matter whether or not the Bible is true or not? I mean, why do people even ask this question? Why do people wonder about the Bible? See, the issue is we really need to come and have this settled within our heart. We need to come into an answer as to whether or not we are going to believe the Bible to be God's word or whether we're going to believe it to be fairy tales. A couple of things we know about the Bible. The Bible is the most read book in all of history. The Bible is the best-selling book in all of history. The Bible is the most translated book in all of history. But the question, just because it's the most read, does not mean it's the Bible. Does not mean it's God's word. See, this is an important question for us because we now live in what's called a postmodern society. We live in a, in, a, in a day and age that says there's no absolute truth out there in the world. There's no way to know that there's one truth. And so you'll say, well, there might be some truth over here, and there's some truth in this, but there's not one absolute truth. There's no final source of truth. And so people look at the Bible and say, you know, the Bible has, has got a great story of morals and teach you good morals and good ethics. But it's not the source of truth. It's just a story. It's just a fairy tale that teaches us how to be good people. Other people uh, generationally will attack the Bible for different reasons. Some would say, well, well, the Bible, it is culturally, it is, it is out of tune with our society. I mean, there's things in there that they talk about that we don't talk about anymore. We don't live like that anymore. So the Bible, you know, it's not relevant to our day and our age. 
Others would say, well, it's historically inaccurate. All the stories in there, they're just fairy tales. They're just meant to be good stories for us to learn from and feel good about, but they're just fairy tales. There's nothing true to it. And so this is where we are. This is where we are as a society. This is why this question is so important, is, is the Bible true? Can I trust the Bible? The reason this question is so important is because Jesus says in John 17, 17, he says, your word is truth. Jesus said, your word is truth. If you have a Bible, if you would turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy is in the second half of your Bible. If you uh, need a Bible, would like one, we've got uh, a number of Bibles in the back. If you just put your hand up, we'd love to put one of these in your hand. Let that be our gift to you. If you need one of these. We're, if you've got one of these Bibles with me, we're on page 855. 855. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16. Before I read this, let's, uh, let's just open up for a minute in prayer. God, we are thankful for the opportunity to be in your house today. Lord, your presence is here and we thank you for that. We thank you for the opportunity that we're able to come and focus on you for, 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 for a few minutes, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to put the distractions out of our mind. And Lord, I pray that as we look into this question is, can I trust the Bible, Lord? I pray that you would work in our hearts today and help us settle that question in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. That you would give us ears to hear. We love you and praise you for who you are. We pray for your presence to be with us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. This, the reason why we say it's important for us to know uh, the answer to this question, is the Bible true, is because it says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equi- may be complete, equipped for every good work. I want you to look in your Bible. I want you to see that word God breathed. I want you to circle that word God breathed. I want you to reach across your neighbor's Bible Bible, and circle that word God breathed. It is defining the Bible as being God breathed. Okay? This is, now some some translations will translate it to say it is inspired. But this is not like like there's an aspiring writer who wrote an inspiring book, like the book Tuesdays with Maury or Little House on the Prairie. It's not just an inspiring book that makes you feel good. No, when it says God breathed, it means, it means God inspired. It means God breathed. It means as I'm up here and I breathe, I'm breathing and there's little vocal cords in my throat and they're going bubble, bubble, bubble and they're moving around. And if I can do it effectively, then words that should be understood will come out. And sometimes my words don't come out where they're understood. But as I breathe, my words come out and my breath becomes my words. And so as, as, as it says, God's word, it says the Bible is, is, is God breathed. It means the Bible is God's word. It is his very word, his word to us. It's not just a good idea. It's not just an inspiring story, but it is God's word to us. That's why Psalm 119.86 says, all your commandments are sure and trusted. And so we become stuck in the middle. We become where our society says, you know, the Bible it's a good book. It's a good book, but it's not really true. It's just a fairy tale. We, we have the society that says there's no absolute truth for our life. Yet the Bible says, I am the absolute truth. 
The Bible says, yes, I absolutely am true. Everything I say is true. And so we're stuck in the middle saying, who do we believe? Can we trust the Bible or do we not? Really, the question comes to is, is where are we going to allow to be our authority? And so this morning, we're going to spend our time looking at that question of how can I trust the Bible? We're going to look at evidence and facts and proofs that will help us make up our mind as to whether or not we can believe the Bible to really be trustworthy and worthy of our attention. So how can I trust the Bible? How can I trust the Bible? Number one for us this morning, we can trust the Bible because it's historically accurate. This doesn't mean that it is just, the Bible is not just doctrinally accurate not just theologically correct. It doesn't just teach accurate morals and good ethics. No, it is true history. We're talking about real people, real places, real time. Proverbs 30 verse 15 says, every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. And we stand here and we say, well, how can we know for sure? How can we know that is historically accurate? Well, we would test the Bible like we test any good piece of history. We're going to look at, the, at history, and one of the first things a historian is going to do is he's going to look at the writing and he's going to say, is this from eyewitness accounts? When a historian is looking at something that he's reading and, and it says it's a history, he says, is it from eyewitness accounts? Is this first, 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 first person? Did one person actually see? Is it second hand? Is it third hand? Or did somebody write this as a legend a hundred years later after it happened? But you see, when we look at the Bible, we know that this is eyewitness accounts. Moses, Moses was there when the Red Sea was parted. Joshua was there when the walls of Jericho uh, fell down. Jesus, his disciples, he were there. They were there at his death. They were there and saw him in his, in his resurrection. What they did is they wrote what happened. They, they wrote down what they saw. And this is what we read, is their eyewitness accounts of what they saw happen through God. I mean, Matthew was there. He saw what happened. He wrote it down and he gave us the book of Matthew. John was there. John saw these things happen to Jesus. He wrote it down and we have the book of John. Peter told this guy named Mark and Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. Luke, Luke was a guy, he was, he was a doctor. And what he did is he went around and he talked to all these eyewitness accounts. He went and talked to all the disciples. He went even and talked to Jesus' mother, Mary, and said, tell me what happened. And as they told him, he wrote it down. So first, we could say we know it's historically accurate because they're eyewitness accounts. But again, there's another way that we can know it's historically accurate. And that's through the uh, extreme care that was provided when they copied the Bible. Now, some people, some people will say, well, yeah, you know, I know the Bible, that it was probably true when it was written, but, you know, the Bible's been around for, you know, 2,000 2, years, and every time they, they write the Bible down, you know, they must have screwed it up somehow. I mean, if, if, if that's the way I'm going to do it, I'm going to screw up as I'm writing things down and again and again. So they say, you know, the Bible was probably true at one point, but it's not true anymore because people have, have miscopied and mistranslated the Bible. In fact, the Mormons say that's the reason why they needed the Book of Mormon, because they said the Bible was mistranslated and not translated correctly. And so they said, hey, we have this new book. It's called the Book of Mormon. And, and, and it needed to become because the Bible wasn't translated correctly. But I want to argue that study shows how they copied the, 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 the Bible. It was done with extreme care. There were these rules that were crazy and so these scribes, these copyists for the Bible, had to follow these exact rules to the letter, to the T. For, exa for example, the scroll spec 
when they, when they were working on a scroll, there was a certain number of columns that they could allow. And it had to be the same number of columns in the old scroll as in the new scroll. And they would limit for each scroll, each page, they would limit, and they could only be 48 to 60 lines on each page. And so if you're working on the new scroll and it doesn't fit with the, old, the amount of lines on the old scroll, it was thrown out. They would say, as you're writing and copying the, copying the scrolls, you could only have 30 words, thir- excuse me, 30 letters per line. And if you crossed more than 30 letters per line, it would be thrown away and you have to start all over. Okay? Again, another, another way that they had to copy the Bible is they had to copy it, not word for word, but they had to copy it letter for letter. Now, how many of you have a smartphone? You pull your smartphone out and you're getting ready to text somebody. And, you, you know, and, and Siri does this autocorrect thing. You know what I'm talking about? And, and, and for example, one time you're texting and you're saying, hey, I'll call you back. Right now I'm dealing with a crying baby. But Siri replaces crying with rabid. And so you're dealing, you know, we, that's the way our phones work. They try and think what words you're saying ahead of time. And so they, they finish the word for you. And you look at this and you're like, what? That's not what I said. Well, when they were copying the Bible, they couldn't look at the word and say, okay, the word is God. I'm going to write God now. No, it was the letter G. Okay, I'm going to write this down. Oh, the letter O. I'm going to write this down. They had to go letter for letter with the way that they copied the Bible. Additionally, as they would go through, they knew how many letters of the alphabet were in each book. And so as they opened up the book of Ezra, they knew that there were 1,653 A's in the book of Ezra. So they'd finish copying the book of Ezra, and they'd count the number of A's. And if there was 1,654 A's in that book, that copy would be thrown away, burned, and they'd have to start all over again. Additionally, they knew uh, the first five books of the letter, uh, first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would know what the exact middle letter, middle letter of, the, of that book was. And so if the middle letter was supposed to be E, they'd find the E, they'd count forward, and they'd count backwards. And if the numbers before and after didn't match up, they'd have to throw it away. And they would look at the, 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 the Old Testament as a whole, and they knew the exact middle letter of the Old Testament. And so they'd count forward and they'd count backwards. And if the numbers don't match up, that copy would be thrown away. If the numbers were even off by one, they'd be thrown away. And so they went through extreme care in copying the Bible for, for new generations to have the very same thing. And one of the greatest proofs of how well the Bible was translated and how it was copied is something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You guys heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Dead Sea Scrolls were found between 1946 and 19. 19- 54. Some of you were alive then. I wasn't. Uh, they were found uh, many, many years ago. And uh, they, they contained all of the Old Testament manuscripts except for the book of Esther. Um, they, now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they estimate, were written in 100 years before Jesus lived. 100 years before Jesus lived. Now, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the manuscripts that they were using came from 900 A.D., so, so these Dead Sea Scrolls came a thousand years before they were currently using. And so, of course, you're going to look and say, man, we're going to see all the errors. You know, we're going to see over a thousand years. We're going to see how bad they copied the Bible and how it is completely different today than it was back then. But they found out there was only about 5% difference between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the current manuscripts. And most of the errors were in the spelling of names. Most of those errors were in, in, in this bad spelling of words. See, over 1,000 years, 1,000 years, the copyists, they were proven with how, 
how much attention to detail they put into the Bible. There's another proof that the Bible is historically correct, and that is through archaeology. You see, there are places and people, uh, these are real places, these are real people in the Bible. They're not just fiction, they're not some story to make a point. You, you can find them, you can see them, you can go and dig them up. That's what we've done. We've gone and we've, we've, we've done archaeological digs, and we found proof that the things in the Bible really happened. Uh, the Areopagus, where Paul was in Acts 17, that's been found. The theater in Athens, where there was a riot in Acts chapter 19, hey, guess what? They found that verified there was in fact there was historians that said you know that guy solomon you know solomon said he had he had all these horses and all these chariots and and the historian said no that's not true there's no guy named solomon and there's no way that solomon could have had horses because they had camels back then they didn't have horses they could only have had camels so sure enough sure enough in northern israel they found a chariot city of solomon's that had thousands and thousands of horse stables uh, for, for his chariots. Again, the archaeological proof proves it. One of the greatest examples of the archaeological proof is the empire called the Hittites. The Hittites are mentioned all over the Old Testament. You hear about the, the empire of the Hittites. Well, the Hittites were not mentioned anywhere else. And no other secular uh, writings had they found anything about the Hittites. So they said, you know what? The Bible made that up. They just completely made it up. And that's one of the proofs why you can't trust the Bible. Because they made up this people called the Hittites. Well, uh, in the early 1900s, Professor Hugo Winkler, Winky, he discovered 10,000 clay tablets in Turkey uh, called the capital of the Hittites. Over 10,000 clay tablets that proved the existence of the the Hittites. You can go, and now everybody believes in the Hittites. You can go and search it on Wikipedia. You can learn about the Hittite people. And guess what? The Bible talked about them for all this time. And now the archaeological proof proves that it was true. So, not only do we find the Bible historically accurate, but number two, we also find the Bible to be scientifically accurate. You see, the Bible and science, sometimes you think the Bible and science, they don't go together. We don't, the Bible and science, you know, they don't mix. I think about the, the movie Nacho Libre, you know, when, when Esqueleto says, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't believe in God, I believe in science! And we think, well, you can't really believe in both. You guys, if you haven't seen that movie, don't waste your time. But, but, but some people say, you know, you can't put the two together. The science and Bible, they're contradictory to, contradictory to each other. Now, I want to clarify that the Bible is not a science textbook. It doesn't use scientific language. You don't open up the Bible and learn how to build a rocket. But the Bible is always ahead of science. The Bible gives true science. You see, science changes. Science is constantly changing. I mean, we think about the third grade science book that you used. I doubt it's still the same third grade science book that they use today. Because the science has changed. They don't believe the same things they did for some of you many, many years ago. For some of you, even just not so many years ago. They don't believe the same science because science has changed. They've proven things different. They've learned new things. And now the science has changed. Um, A a couple examples. For thousands of years, for thousands of years, people believed the earth was flat. And we remember learning about this in science, right? Christopher Columbus, he was one of those guys. I mean, for thousands of years, the earth was just a a, a, a flat thing. 
It wasn't until guys named uh, Copernicus and Galileo and Columbus, they said, you know, I don't think the earth, the, the earth is flat. I think it's round. I think it's a sphere. For thousands of years, though, they didn't believe this. But Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22 says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers. See, the book of Isaiah was written in 700 BC, 700 years before Christ came. Before anyone else knew, God said, the earth is a sphere, it's round. Science proved. For thousands of years, for thousands of years, people believed that the earth was held up by something. They, they didn't believe it was just there. They believed it, believed it had to be held up by something. And depending on what culture you lived in, there were different reasons for, or different beliefs as to how the earth was held up. If you were a Greek, you believed that there was a, there was a Greek giant named Atlas who held the earth up, right? You guys ever heard Greek Atlas? The Hindus, the Hindus, they have a weird belief. They believe that the earth was held up on the back of a giant elephant. And they believe that every time the elephant moved, that's why you'd have an earthquake. So, you know, I guess the elephant doesn't move that often. Okay, now this is, this is, you, you can look this up on Wikipedia. You can see this for yourself. You say, well, well, what did the, what did the elephant stand on? Well, they believe the elephant stood on a giant sea turtle. And, and well, what did the giant sea turtle do? Well, he, he stood on the back of a giant sea serpent that swam across some cosmic sea. I mean, this is, this is, this is what the Hindus believed. The Egyptians, the Egyptians, were, we typically view them as being brilliant people. I mean, they, they were brilliant. They were advanced in, 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 in architect and engineering and astronomy. I mean, they built the pyramids. And, and, and the Egyptians believed that there were five pillars that held up the earth. Okay? But again, we look at God's word and we say, what does God's word say? These people believed this for, for thousands of years, that the earth was held up by something. But Job, which is probably the first, bio, first book of the Bible that was ever written, he writes in Job chapter 26, verse 7. He says, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He hangs the earth on nothing. It's not held up by anything. God has it there in place. And again, the Bible is teaching the science that we didn't believe for thousands of years. Another example, for, for many, many years, people believed that there were uh, a thousand stars in the sky. They, they'd look up at the sky and say, well, I see a thousand stars. That's all I can see. That's all the stars that there are. And in fact, um, in 150 BC, there was this guy named um, Hipparchus, and, and he counted all the stars he could see. And he, he wrote this famous dissertation that everybody believed. And he looked up and he says, I see 1,022 stars, and that is how many stars there are in the whole universe. And so everybody believed his dissertation. There's 1,022 stars. About 300 years later, there's this guy named um, Ptolemy. And Ptolemy, he says, you know, that guy Hippo, he's kind of crazy. He's kind of loony. You know, he doesn't have it all together in his head. And so Ptolemy looks up and he counts the stars. And he says, I found four more. That other guy's crazy. There's 1,026 stars up there. And this is what they believed for years. But again, we open up God's word. Jeremiah 33, 22 says, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, the, as the NIV says, as countless as the stars in the sky. We understand now that there are numerous stars that we can't even comprehend how many are out there. This is one of the things I love looking up and seeing how enormous it is because we see this small glimpse of what it is when it goes on and on and on. One more example. Not, not many people know how, how George Washington died. Anybody know how George Washington died? I'll tell you how George Washington died. George Washington bled to death. George Washington, see, 
what they used to do back in the day is they, they, they believed, the old science believed, that when you got sick, it was because of your fluids. So it was because of your, your, your blood or it was because of your, 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 your snot, you know, your, all, all your mucus and all that stuff. And so, and so one time George Washington got sick and what was the common science of the day was if you got sick, they had to do something about your blood. And so they would cut you and they would bleed you out a little bit thinking if you got rid of some of your blood that you would get better. And so, and so George Washington got sick and so they cut him and they bled him out a little bit and, and they said, okay, now we're going to let him rest up and see what he does. And a couple of days later, he was still sick. So the doctor said, well, we got to do it again. So they cut him again and they bled him out again. And they said, okay, we'll give him a few days. And a few days later, he was still sick. And so the third time they cut him again and they bled him out again, but they bled him to death. You see, they believed back in those days that the heart was, was something used for heat. They didn't realize that the heart pumped blood and, and they didn't realize that blood was the source of life. But again, we open up God's word. Leviticus seventeen eleven says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Today, when you're sick, you give blood. Today, when you're sick, you're given blood. The exact opposite of what they did for thousands of years. We call that a transfusion. When you're sick, we want you to have good blood inside of you. And so we transfuse blood to you. We understand the blood is a source of life. And, 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 and it's how it makes you feel better. So the, so the Bible is always ahead of science. The Bible is always ahead of science. Again, that's why Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true because God's word is flawless. The third reason why we can believe the Bible to be uh, true is because it is historically accurate. It is historically, excuse me, I just said that. It is prophetically accurate. It is prophetically accurate. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean that it's prophetically accurate? That means the predictions in the Bible have come true. There are thousands upon thousands of prophecies in the Bible that have come true. And there are many more that are going to come true. You see, the prophecies say, well, this is going to happen at this such a time. This is how it's going to happen. And guess what? It happens. And there are thousands of the prophecies that have come true. And there's more that are yet to come. In fact, when you look even to the, to the life of Jesus, there are three, over 300 prophecies about the life of Jesus. 300 prophecies that say things like, this is where Jesus will be born. This is how he'll be born. This is how he'll live. This is how he'll die. Over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus, that actually came true. Now to understand this, if I was up here, and I'm just going to pick someone out in the audience, if I'm going to look and I'm going to see my sister Sarah, and if I were to guess 300 predictions for her life, what are the odds that those would come true? Be astronomical odds. They're not going to happen. What do I know? Right? And so you have to, it almost takes more faith to believe that all those prophecies are, are, and all those predictions are a coincidence than they are perhaps that God actually planned them. It takes more faith to believe in coincidence than it does to believe in God. For example, Isaiah 7.14 says that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Micah 5.2 says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Hosea 11.1 says that Jesus would spend time in, Bethle- in, in, in Egypt. Jeremiah 31.15 says there would be a massacre of children in, in the Messiah's birthplace. Ha. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says that Jesus would be crucified with criminals. Psalm 22.16 says his hands and his feet would be pierced. I mean, are these just coincidences? Can we believe that's just a coincidence that the, the Old Testament prophets believed all these and said all these things would happen? And when Jesus came, he actually fulfilled them? Is it just coincidence? No. 
Matthew 26 says, and Jesus was speaking, was speaking, he said in response to all that is happening around him, he says this, he says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. The Bible is prophetically accurate. Fourth reason why we trust the Bible is because it is thematically unified. There's one thing that I just continues to amaze me about the Bible. The Bible is one theme. You look at this whole book and you say, well, there's, you know, uh, it's written over a period of 1,600 years. There's over 40 different authors that wrote this book. Um, They were in every stage of life. It was written on three different continents in three different languages. And guess what? They all tell the same story. There's the same theme from the beginning to the end. From Genesis, Genesis to Revelation, there's one theme of the Bible, and that is redemption through Jesus. See, when we look at the authors of the Bible, some of them were prophets, and some of them were poets. Some of them were, were princes. Some of them were kings and soldiers. There, was, there were fishermen who wrote the Bible. There were tax collectors who wrote the Bible. All kinds of people wrote the Bible. And they, were, they wrote the Bible in all kinds of locations. Some of the Bible was written in a cave. Some of it was written in a, in a palace. Some of it was written in ships and on homes. And, and even there was some of the Bible that was written in prison. Yet we see the same theme from cover to cover. From Genesis to Revelation, the same theme of redemption. When we look at the Bible, we know there is one star from Genesis to Revelation, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the star of the Bible. Jesus is the theme of the entire book. That's why Jesus said in Luke 24, He said, and beginning with Moses, which means the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that means the rest of the Old Testament. He said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, did you get that? See, most people think the New Testament's about Jesus. They say, well, the New Testament, yeah, Jesus is alive. So the New Testament's about Jesus. The Old Testament's about Israel. But no, Jesus said, everything is about me. And I'm going to teach you and show you how all the stories point to me. How all the analogies, how all the pictures, they point to me. Jesus went through and showed one theme from the beginning to the end. Of God's plan to redeem his people and build a family for eternity through Jesus. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 5, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he said, But it is the scriptures that bear witness to me. The scriptures bear witness to Jesus. Thematically unified, there is one theme. I think about, the, think about our church. I think about our church, and I say, We are five months old. And, I, you know, there's a lot of things that a church could be doing, there's a lot of things that we could do as a church. And one of the things I've said from the very beginning of our church is there's a lot of good things for a church to be doing. There's a lot of good things that we can do as a church. But if we ever get distracted from our one theme, if we ever get distracted from our one purpose, man, it's going to be trouble for our church. And at five months old, I want to remind us that we have one purpose, and that is the purpose of Jesus Christ. The purpose of seeing people find redemption through Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things that we read in the Bible, a lot of things that we would say is good, and things that we're going to say, how can we do this at the church? How can the church be used for good? We want to be, be about that. But if we ever get distracted from our one theme, our one purpose of Jesus Christ, man, I'll tell you to go to some other church at that point. 
Because we have one message in the Bible, and that is Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and the life that he offers. You're here today, I'm asking you, be unified with us in our theme. We have one mission, and that is of Jesus Christ, and his life, and his death, and his resurrection. I'm asking you to be unified with us for that purpose. The reason why we exist as a church is to proclaim Jesus Christ in the, in the Yakima Valley. That is the reason we are here. And yes, God will allow us to do other things, but we have one message, and we will not be distracted from that message. Be unified with us in that message. Fifth way that we know that the Bible is true and we can trust it is because it has survived all attacks. See, the Bible's been under attack for century upon century, and attacked for everything you can imagine. I mean, it's been ridiculed, it's been mocked, it's been debated, it's been destroyed. It's probably the most banned book in all of history. I mean, people have died because they weren't willing to give up their Bibles. People have died. If you were to go to the the country of North Korea and you try to bring a Bible in with you, you know what? They'd stop you. They would arrest you. They would throw you in jail. They might even kill you because you wanted to bring a Bible into that country with you, North Korea. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Peter says in 1 Peter, he says, the grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever, forever. In other words, there's temporary stuff and it's going to wilt. There's temporary stuff in this life and you know what? It's going to pass away. It's going to wilt. It doesn't last. I mean, you don't read last week's newspaper. Anybody read last week's newspaper? I mean, you go on vacation, you come home and there's a style of the, the stack of newspapers. Do you ever go through and read those? No, it's last week's news. Everything's new and different. You don't read that. It's old. It's time to be thrown away. But the word of God never gets old. It is lasting forever. And this is a promise. This is a promise to us that Jesus makes. He says, it doesn't matter if it gets attacked. It doesn't matter if it's ridiculed. Guess what? The Bible is still here. We are still preaching from the Bible today. Just because people don't believe it, just because people try and attack it doesn't make it any less true. It will remain. The last reason why we can trust the Bible is because it has transforming power. The Bible has transforming power. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 8. Verses 31 to 32, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, nothing, nothing changes lives like the Bible. Nothing changes lives like God's word. There have been thousands upon thousands of people of lives that have been changed by God's word. My life is one of them that has been changed by the word of God. I mean, there have been flat-out drunks, flat-out mean, angry drunks, irresponsible addicts who now are living clean and sober lives because they picked up this book and they started reading it. Broken, hurting people, people hanging on the last thread, thinking, I have nowhere else to go. And they open up this book and their lives are changed. Their lives are changed dramatically because this book transforms lives. See, if I thought that human behavior, if I thought human behavior could be changed through laws, 
If I thought we could change human behavior through laws, then I would have become a politician. I would have become a politician. But see, I don't believe that, I don't believe, (laughs) I have zero faith. I have zero faith that change is going to come from politics. I don't think that politics is going to change the greatest problems on our planet. Because you can create laws throughout the entire world. You can create laws that says you can't do this and you can't do that. But there's one thing that laws can't do. They can't change the human heart. Politics and the law cannot change a human heart. Only God can do that. Only God can change the deepest thing that has gone wrong with us, and that's our hearts. God has to do that. And this book has changed people that you could not even imagine had their lives have been different. Some of you have these stories of this is who I was, and this is where I came from. And then it's like all of a sudden God's word became real to me, and it became uh, something that I could understand. And all of a sudden the words became life to me, and I became changed. I remember growing up, I grew up, and I would open up the Bible, and I said, man, it's so stuffy. You know, it's just words that I don't understand. I don't get it. And I remember I went to this, uh, my, my story is I went to a funeral, and a pastor said, I want you to know how you can have a relationship with God. And he told me all of this, and I said, okay, I want that. And I went home, and I said, you know, you know and he talked about God, he talked about all this, but what does this book say? And I went home, and I opened up this book, and I read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John time and time and time again. And it became all new to me. I'd read it before, I'd opened it up before, and I didn't understand it. But it's like God opened my eyes new to it. And it was like, this was, this was so beautiful to me. And I understood it. And I said, man, this is so different than everything I've heard before. This isn't just trying to get me to change my, my actions. This is changing my heart. It's changing who I am. That's what the Word of God has the power to do. Can you trust it? Absolutely. Can you trust the Bible? Absolutely. But the question is, more importantly, what, is the, what are you going to have be the authority of your life? What is going to be the authority in your life? This is something for every one of us to decide. Are we going to let the Word of God be our authority? Are we going to let the world be our authority? Are we going to listen to what God says? Or are we going to listen to public opinion? Or worse, are we even going to listen to what our own thoughts and feelings say? Well, I just follow what, what I feel inside of me. You know, the issue is, sometimes inside of me, I know I don't think the right thing. I know I don't do the right thing. Who are you going to listen to? Who is going to be your authority? Who's going to be in charge? Is it going to be God? Or is it going to be you? You see, the issue with God's word is we open it up and we realize, you know, God's word teaches something very different than what we're used to. We're used to saying, you know, I'm going to choose what I want to do for my life. I'm going to dictate what I do. No one's going to tell me how to live. No one's going to tell me that I'm wrong. We say, no, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to decide what my life looks like. No one's going to tell me what to do. And so we look at the, the Bible and we say, you know, the Bible, if, if I were to actually leave, live for the Bible and, and believe it, you know what? The Bible says I'm wrong. The Bible says I have to begin to change. The Bible says I have to follow God the way that God says to. And we sit there in this conundrum and say, you know what? I like doing things my way. I like being my own God. 
But let me ask you, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? Is it solving all of your problems in life? Is all your stress, all your worry, all your agitation, is it taking it away? Is it? I don't think so. I would doubt it. Have you gotten everything you wanted out of your life by doing it your way? Or is it kind of like you're spinning wheels? Kind of like you move, you take a step forward and then you take two steps backwards. See, rebelling against God is dumb. It's just plain dumb. It's kind of like a T-Rex trying to eat a lollipop. If you can picture that. Kind of like a T-Rex eating a lollipop. It's just dumb. (laughs) See, this book says that your life is not an accident. This book says your life has an overarching purpose. This book says that you aren't here by it. Science doesn't tell you that. Science doesn't tell you that your life has a purpose. Science tells you that you are here by accident. The Bible says that there is an overarching purpose in your life. This book says that God loves you. This book says that you can be forgiven. All those things in your past that you feel the weight weight for, this book says you can be forgiven for those things. This book says that you can be forgiven for the past, that you can have a purpose for living, and that you can have a home in heaven. This book says that no matter what problem you face, no matter what difficulty, that God can use that purpose for good. That God is greater than any trial, any circumstance in your life. That's what this book says. This book says there's a reason for hope. This book says every one of us, doesn't matter where we've come, doesn't, doesn't matter what happened this past week, doesn't matter how bad our lives are, this book says that you can have hope. I want us to settle this issue today. Settle this issue and accept the Bible as God's flawless word, as a final authority for our lives. As the worship team comes up, I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you prepared to settle in your heart today the Bible is exactly God's word? That it is a final authority in your life. That when God's word speaks, that you will listen to it. You will listen to God's word. You won't listen to public opinion. You won't listen to what the the TV says. You won't listen to what your own feelings say, but that you will open up God's word. And let God's word begin to change you. Times that we don't understand. Man, God, why do you demand this of me? God, why do you say this? Still God's word. It has been proven accurate over over history. Will you make it your authority for your life? Let's pray.